Here we are, May the 17th, 2020, lecture discussion number 103 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, mostly, pretty much today for sure. And same thing, different Sunday, which is has been recently at least uh, this random, it's not really random, I'm pretending it's random, but it's this randomly pulling of issues and questions from the pile, uh, the big pile that we've accumulated over the months and then putting them uh, mostly on the uh, holy dry erase board here and uh, see what uh, fits with what. Uh, today is going to be foundational in the sense that it is a lot like framing footings and whaling and framing up uh, uh, three-quarter inch plywood for pouring walls. So this is foundational cinder block for those of you who still do cinder block, even though in Alaska cinder block is... Uh, pretty rare nowadays. And I know I make it look easy, what I'm going to do today, but again, I'm a highly trained religious professional with decades of practiced uh, experience and think uh, highly honed skills, skills. And I'm hoping that what I can do today is get you to see the process that I go through almost every Sunday. Uh, so that it begins to assimilate, I, I'm hoping, in the rest of you at some point in time. I'm trying to make you all like me. And that's the plan. I didn't put my water in the fake Coke glass. There we go. I've kind of dispensed with the announcements today other than the one that says that on May the 31st, uh, we will not be broadcasting that day because it's the holiday and people need to get some time off, especially as uh, summer is coming here in Alaska. There's lots of things to do. Uh, This is the time where we're the most busy, so that still is occurring. I would warn that you shouldn't try what I'm doing at home in front of an audience, um, but I already know that no one does try to do this at home, so that's kind of hoping that I can change some of that a little bit. And, and uh, therefore, let's, let's start out with Hebrews. A lot of stuff going on the board today, lots and lots and lots, and I'll try to put leave it up there as long as possible. I recognize the pause button is one of the great uh, valuable things that I now have out there. We're going to go with Hebrews 13, 5 through 8. That's how we start today. For he himself has said, I will never, (coughs) excuse me, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Immediately, I hope that you recognize Matthew 10, 28 here. So these two tie together. Also in Matthew, I'm sorry, uh, Hebrews 13, 5 through 8, is Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. What would be this various and strange doctrines that Hebrews 13, 5 through 8 is talking about? Obviously, it has to do with, uh, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It has something to do with the same yesterday, today, and uh, and forever. In other words, his infinity. So if you have a doctrine that is contrary to his infinity, you have a doctrine that he will never leave or forsake you. So here is an inter- eternal security doctrine right here. If you have a doctrine otherwise, then uh, uh, Paul would describe it. And again, I'm going to say Paul wrote Hebrews. We'll get to that in a minute. Paul would suggest that that is a various and strange doctrine. Anything that suggests otherwise to the context that all of that is in. Now, Matthew 10, 28 says, do not fear those who can kill the body and cannot kill the soul. That's how it relates to Hebrews 13, 5. If you have a doctrine that says otherwise, but fear him who is able to destroy, send the soul to destruction, resurrect the body and the soul and send it to destruction. That's Matthew 10:28. He is the judge of all things. If you have a doctrine that is not consistent with that, that is a strange and various doctrine. And, and as is usual, many questions 
start coming out right now. Just with these two verses, specifically Hebrews 13, 5 through 8. The old whoop yourself upside the head. Hebrews was written by somebody. Um, and I, I know there's disagreement. You'll see 10 to 12, 15 people named as a possible author of Hebrews. Again, I think it is overwhelmingly Paul. And last week you might remember somebody... Uh, I don't want to necessarily identify them, but the people are interested in all of these different things, and they're justifiably so. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? And I made the case that um, that Paul did even then in a subtle way. But the the issue was last week that they wanted to remove the epistles out of the Bible because of their emphasis on salvation by belief, by faith, by grace alone works is unsaving, has no ability to save you. So uh, Hebrews was written by somebody who knew that and who had an incredible command of the Levitical sacrificial system, as well as knowing about the person of Melchizedek, and what Melchizedek, who he is, what he represents, and the prevalent uh, heresies or apostasies, the non-grace ones that were rising up in the Christian Jewish com- communities. So whoever wrote that knew those three things, many others, but he knew those three. Th- he had great expertise in those three areas. Uh, the, the writer possessed that. And I long ago, as I said earlier, concluded that Paul wrote Hebrews, uh, citing those qualifications. The fact that he had that command of the Levitical system, he did understand the typology of Melchizedek, and he also was familiar with all of the apostasies and heresies that were gathering uh, strength inside the early church. And he had his signature ending on the end of this book. Grace uh, be with you all, all. Amen. And here's the key word. Grace. Again, Paul wants to be removed by those who do not like the doctrine of grace. They do not like a belief-based system. They want a works-based system. And they are eagerly trying to expunge him. So he always said, grace be with you always. Or grace be with you all. Amen. He did that consistently. And to repeat, that's Romans 1.17. That is Romans 4.4. He is saying these things because he knows the attack that is coming at that time with grace. He also, I think, had an understanding that it would be attacked, attacked for centuries. He had that, uh, the prophecy of the Gentiles having the, uh, being uh, Christ going to the Gentiles, grafting in, he had that. So also, that's, he had those qualifications, the signature ending was there. But the one that probably affected me the most was the numerology of it. Uh, He had 13 epistles, if you do not count Hebrews. That's 7 plus 7. That's 14. That would be the 14th epistle, and the Holy Spirit would know that, duh. And I think that uh, the numerology there is just uh, overwhelmingly uh, definitive. Hebrews 13.5 obviously connects to Genesis 28.13 through 15. I know this is going to get tough. I realize that, oh my gosh, how much math is there today? And if you get Genesis 13, uh, or 28, 13 through 15, you end up at John 8, 24. And if you're at John 8, 24, you're at 8, 58. And if you're at 8, 58, well, we'll find out here in a minute. You just keep going. So let's read a couple of those. Let's take 28 of Genesis 13 to 15 and see how it connects to I will never leave you or forsake you. What am I doing to you? Yes, you have figured it out already. I am making you run through the Bible, finding all of the information that explains one verse. Hebrews 13, 5. Here it is, Genesis uh, 28, 13 through 15. And behold, the Lord, L-O-R-D, was all capitalized, which means that's the Y-A-V-H, that's a tetragrammatron. The Lord stood above it, the ineffable, unpronounceable name of God. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I, the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I I will give to you and your descendants. 
Now, my Bible has, I am the Lord God of Abraham. I think that is appropriate. I think the am is there. The I am that I am. That's uh, Exodus uh, 3.14. I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land of which you lie. He does not say I was. The present tense is implied. I will give you, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. When does this happen? Is this a millennial reference, which, if that's the case, takes us into Revelation and Daniel 12. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you whenever, wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Obviously, that connects you to Hebrews 13, 5 through 8. So here's John 8, 28. You should know John 8, 28. It is 8, 24 as well. It is impressive stuff. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, that's the brazen serpent, right? Uh, That's John 3 with uh, uh, Nicodemus. Then you will know that I am and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Now, that's complicated. It's a triune verse. Do not think that there is any subordination here because he makes it clear there is never any subordination. Obviously, 8.24, let me read that fast. I can never read that enough. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's, again, Exodus 3.14. He is the, the, the voice out of the burning bush for Israel. So, 8.58 now. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them. He walks through them as quantum tunneling, yea, and so passed by. Now, Matthew 22, 29 through 33 belongs with these as to John, again, 824. Well, I put a John 8.24 over already there. I left one of them out. Uh, John 8.28. Now we'll put in Matthew. If you don't have time to read all of these, I'm going to assume that some of you, hopefully all of you, will start to read them. Let me make sure I get the right ones in here. 33. Matthew 22, 29 through 33. Now, you might recognize that. It belongs in this list and for obvious reasons because that is where um, Jesus rebukes the Sadducees for not uh, knowing Genesis 28, 13 through 15. Because Genesis 28, 13 through 15 is concerning the resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees did not believe there was such a thing as a resurrection of the dead in the Torah or in the first five, the Pentateuch. And they said it constantly. There was no resurrection in the Pentateuch, therefore there is no resurrection. That is what's going on here at Matthew 22, 29 through 33. And Christ says to them, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know your Bible and you do not know the grace of God, or the power of God. Uh, and the Sadducees were teaching heresy. You see how that takes me back up here to Hebrews. I won't divert into Matthew 22, 29 through 33 today, other than say, if you cannot or will not connect, there are three beholds. I gave you two of them, but there are three beholds, and it starts at Genesis 28:10. Goes to 15. There's three beholds there. But if you don't understand those beholds, every time you see a behold again, make sure you stop. But if you cannot or will not connect the, the beholds of Genesis 28, uh, 13 through 15, just those two, to the grace of God and the power of God to resurrect the dead, then you do not know the scriptures. That's what he said to the Pharisees. 
or the Sadducees. So think of it as kind of a Sadducean test. Ask yourself, do I understand why those beholds are there and what they have to do with all of this? And there are those who are willfully blind. They're intentionally blind. And then, of course, the uh, companion to that is ignorance. Neither one is a good place to be. Both of them can be resolved. So if you're willfully uh, blind to it because you don't want to read it, you can resolve that. If you go through it so quickly that you don't understand what it says and you draw false conclusions, and again, that brings us back to that admonition in Hebrews. That's not good, but both of them can be willfully fixed. If you will, choosing to be wrong is more difficult. And I've said this many times. There are people who love being wrong. And they love it so much that they're not going to leave it. They know they're wrong. They like being wrong. And they have even told me, I know, I can see, I know what it is, I don't care. I'm going to believe what I believe because I like believing it, even though I know I'm wrong. That's really common in the church. And you should expect it, no matter, especially if you end up behind a pulpit. You absolutely should expect it. Uh, Choosing to be wrong is more difficult to correct than being oblivious. But the Sadducees were both. They taught hopelessness. That death reigns supreme. There was no resurrection. God did not love you. God, there is no grace of God. He is, he is just established a bunch of creatures that eventually will cease to exist, waiting for themselves to be, to, waiting for that secession. And that's, as you know, that's pretty much the same as all of our collegiate academia today, our contemporary media today all teach this. This is evolutionary atheism. It's monism. It's physicalism. I don't want to digress into that. I've got too much to do here. Just understand that Genesis 28, 10 through 15. Let me go back and pick up that uh, other behold. Oh, my goodness. I should have a... Okay. Now, Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. And he laid down it down in that place. There's my pillow competition right there. Never mind. And he laid down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed and behold, this is the first of the three beholds of this particular passage. And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Behold, I am with you and will keep you whenever you go, wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I have spoken to you. So those are the three beholds. <coughs> Excuse me. Genesis 28, 10 through 15 is a vow. It's an oath. God himself, it's a declaration of a promise from God himself. And he is who? He is the only one that keeps a promise. I have railed against the organization, the promise breakers. So a whole bunch of them, and they get up and they promise to break their promises, which is good. That's what mankind, well, they don't call themselves the promise breakers. But that's what we are. That's what humanity is. The promise keeper, the one that keeps the covenant, the one that keeps his word, that keeps his oath, keeps his vow. And that's, again, that is what this is. Jacob also has a vow here. How did that go? But the promise keeper is God himself. And, and he said, I will never leave Jacob and his descendants, which is the nation of Israel, and all who believe. And the symbol of the covenant is this letter. He has a ladder. So, why a ladder? We don't really know what the ladder looked like. We have our own definition of ladder, but I think that ladders are pretty well defined all through history. And would, our ladder would be recognized as a ladder, even though I have fancy little things that pop out to keep me stable. It doesn't work. I fall, off and found, I fall down a lot, as you guys all know. But there is this ladder, and that ladder reaches from earth to heaven. So I have earth, and I have heaven 
home a cabin like that because we don't have any idea what it looks like. And I have this ladder going between earth and heaven. The physical and the spiritual, if you wish to think of it that way. And on that ladder are angels descending and ascending. And the Lord stands above the ladder. So if you have all the pieces, you have angels, and they don't have, well, the, the cherubim and the seraphim have wings, but all, all, I know it looks like bats. But I have angels, boy, this is such good work. I have angels on the ladder, I have Christ standing above the ladder, I have earth. And heavens. And I have the throne of God, if you want to think of the throne of God up there. And that's the picture. It's one of the beholds, the first behold. So, what do we know now? Well, we know this connects to Hebrews 13, 5 through 8, because he says so. All scripture connects. He says, I will never leave you and forsake you. I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So there's more information. Put them both together. We know that also connects to John 3.12. I'm going to run out of place already. John 3.12 is ascending and descending. Proverbs 30 verse 4. Ascending and descending. What is the name of Christ? That's the mystery of Agar. Again, John 8, 28, John 8, 58 through 59. The I am that I am in Matthew 22, 29 through 33. These, uh, did I put Matthew 22? Yeah. All of these pieces connect to the ladder. So now all we got to do, it's merely a simple task to assemble all the pieces and assign all the meaning. The meanings to them is piece of pie, easiest cake. So what is the ladder? What is the ladder? What is that question I just asked? Yes, it's an intentionally poorly worded question. When I say, what is the ladder? I am intentionally poorly wording that. Why are the angels descending and ascending on the ladder? Do they need the ladder to go up and down? Why do we even have a ladder? Can't angels go up and down without the ladder or do they have to have the ladder? Apparently, they ascend and descend on the ladder and it must be necessary. Why is it necessary? And I hope the answer is obvious, given the destinations. The ladder is a pathway, is it not, between heaven and earth, a conduit. There has to be a pathway between heaven and earth. How come? Something's wrong with one of them. Actually, you can make the case that there's also an issue in heaven, but with respect to Christ, with respect to God. Remember, he's standing above the ladder. So in order to get to him, you have to have angels ascending and descending and a ladder. It's a great behold. It's a great truth. So the ladder, again, is a pathway. From the fallen world to the heavenly estate, to God himself, to the throne room. This is reconciliation. You're getting to the, you're getting to the courtroom of God. So, now I'm adding, I'm remembering Ecclesiastes 12. All this work we've done in Ecclesiastes 12. And I'm writing Ecclesiastes 12, 6 and 7 out primarily because I want to prove that I can spell Ecclesiastes while looking at a board. It's not as easy as it looks. Also, if I'm in Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 7, then obviously I'm in Genesis 2, 7 again. And I have a note here to add Luke 23, 42. For those of you who want one more place to go. Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 7 is where Solomon says, Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed, and that your spirit will go back to him who gave it, and your body will go to dust. If the body goes to dust, now you get an idea what the angels are doing. I hope you have an idea. 
Yeah, that's why you go to Luke 23:42 because that is where it is said that the angels come to get your spirit. And so the angels are carrying a spiritual package. They're not carrying the dust of the earth because that's, that's for God to do that. He's going to resurrect the body out of the dust. He's very good at remembering where you are, where your body is. But the angels are obviously carrying the spirit that goes back to him. So that explains how in Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 7, your spirit gets back to God. The angels carry it. So, again, uh, the returning of the breath of the spirit of life to him who gave it. And, and that is the connection to Matthew 22, 29 through 33, which they say there is no resurrection. And God, of course, corrected them and said, I am the God of Abraham. He still lives. I have his spirit. His spirit was carried to me by my angels. God is the God of the living. And they're, they're, those who were resurrected to life, as God so defines life, his definition of life prevails here. Those who enter the gates that are forever open. That, of course, is the new Jerusalem. Revelation 29, 21. Let me see, 9 through 10. I hope that's right. That's the holy Jerusalem that descends out of the heaven from God. Okay, so we can now conclude, I submit that we can, that the latter is not a what. It's a who. That's why the question was intentionally worded poorly. The latter is Christ. The means of restoring the saved to heaven is Jesus Christ. That's the means. He's the latter. He's the mediator. He's the reconciler. He is the resurrection and the life uh, itself. He's the only life itself. John 11.25 is picturing resurrection. The first phase of the resurrection. The first phase of the resurrection is the return of the spirit to him who gave it. So that is resurrection. And the Sadducees said, no, there is. Where are the Sadducees? I have to find them. 10.28. The Sadduc- oh, no, 22.29 uh, Matthew. The Sadducees said, there is no resurrection. There is no hope. There's only death, extinguishment. And the latter, Genesis 28, tells you no. The first process of resurrection is the spirit has to return to him who gave it. So the latter, again, the mediator is a person. And the angels are descending and ascending or ascending and descending on Christ himself. And why do they do that? What are they carrying? I hope I answer that. Another intentionally poorly worded question. They're, it's who are they carrying? And they are carrying those. They're carrying the spirits of humanity. And if you think, if you thought that there was gold and silver and precious stones, riches of mankind, cars and boats, Mercedes Benz, blah, 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 etc. at all. Well, then think again, Tiny Tim. Luke 16, 12, 22. And that is where the angels come for Lazarus. So it was the beggar died and was carried by the angels up the ladder. In this case, they went to, they went to Abraham's bosom. Christ emptied Abraham's bosom and brought them to heaven during his crucifixion interval. There's an interval in the crucifixion. It's the entombment in interval. So angels do not carry the temporal. They come for living souls, and they are coming for us. They are given the harvest, Matthew 13:29 through 30. That is the parable of the sower. Oh, I'm sorry, of the wheat and the tares. Matthew 13, 41. Matthew 13, 41 is where Christ says, I send my angels. The Son of Man will send out his angels, he says. His angels. What's that? That's possession. He's the owner of the angels, just as he's the owner of us. So the angels are his. 
He has authority over them because he has all the authority, and they are his because he made them. The Son of Man owns the angels. And obviously, that, uh, this, this, is, this linkage again to Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 7 is ridiculous, unmistakable. So, that was easy. You have all those pieces. You can begin to find the wonders that are there. Let's put the three beholds on the on the board. Behold number one is the ladder. Obviously, there's going to be a relationship between these three these three beholds. Behold number two, the Lord stood, Christ stood. Above the ladder. What's the obvious question? Why not below the ladder? Why doesn't why isn't he standing here? Why doesn't he stand on the ladder? Well, he is the ladder. Could he stand on himself while he's standing on himself? Of course he can. That's omnipresence. Number three, Hebrews 13. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you and will keep you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. For it is good that the heart be established by grace. Hebrews 13.8 Grace. It is good that the heart be of grace. That again tells you who wrote it. That's Paul. It is good that the heart be established by grace. So he's saying it is good that the heart be changed by the grace of God and not by works. Who would write that? Paul would write that. Again, Romans 1.17 and 4.4. Jesus is the ladder and he stands above the ladder because right now he is above the ladder. Also the ladder itself. So understanding what he's doing and where he is and why he's doing it is in the symbol of the ladder and standing above the ladder. Hebrews 13:5 through 13:8, uh, Genesis 28 is about grace. It's done by grace. He's never going to leave nor forsake you in death and resurrection. That's how the Sadducees fit into this. Again, Ecclesiastes 12, 7, Matthew 22, 29 through 33. He is forever. He is infinite. He's outside of time. Time consists in him. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. If you only get one verse out of cliffside in your entire life, I hope that it is Colossians 1, 15 through 18. When he says that he is the same always and forever, that means he's immutable. Which means that he cannot change. He's unchanging. He's the same before time. He's the same for all of time. Malachi 3 6, right? I am God and I do not change. I change not. I am the Lord and I change not. He is the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob live. They have life. That's why he's the I am. They are. They have been given life as Christ defines life. They were carried up the ladder as a metaphor. Now you can nitpick that because he takes them himself when he empties uh, the bosom of Abraham. Ah, it's been such a weird life for me as I have gone into my dotage. First, I needed glasses to read the Bible. I needed glasses to read the notes. I needed glasses to see the clock. Now, I can't read anything with my glasses, uh, and I can't see the clock without them. So, and when I do see the clock, it's mostly, here's how I have to see it. Uh, 
This aging stuff is not as much fun as I was promised. Some might say that Jesus Christ being the ladder and simultaneously standing above the ladder uh, is superpositional. By some who might say that, I mean me. Here's something that I want you to consider. Omnipresence. And again, I'm writing it on the board to prove that I can spell it while writing on the board. Omnipresence is infinite superposition. Now, that might mean nothing to most of you, but uh, I will get, I promise you, somebody will write me and say, you're right. Omnipresence is infinite superposition. Anyway, that's just for fun. That's what I think is fun. When I first saw the, com- the, the concept of superposition, I recognized how it related to omnipresence. Uh, how it related to where Christ walks through people. And with that being said, there is a doctrinal truth in the first two beholds of the three beholds of Genesis 28, 12 through 13. Immediately, we should consider the greatest of all mysteries here. And that is 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. Um, the mystery of godliness, the hypostatic union, the hypostatus forever, Exodus 21, 4 through 6. Here's what it says in 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. This is the greatest of all mysteries right here of the uh, mysteries, this is the greatest one. Of the eleven, this is one, number one. And here's what he says. He says six things. God was manifested in the flesh. So God, the ladder, was manifested in the flesh. So the ladder is made out of what? What do you think the ladder is made out of? If you think aluminum, let's try again. What is it made out of? In those days, it's made out of wood. He is the ladder. He attaches himself to wood. He takes all of this energy, not all of his energy, obviously. He's omnipotent, but he, ta- he puts a great deal of energy into establishing his connection to the crimson worm, to the, to the wood, to the cross. He attaches himself to the cross, and he is above the earth. So... God was manifested in the flesh. God added humanity. He was justified in the spirit. That's number two of the, of the mystery of godliness. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the Gentiles. He, it was, he was believed on in the world and received up in glory. He is the invisible God that was made visible. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. <coughs> He, and again, and here, here is John 1, 3 through 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, 45. The invisible God made visible. This is the one who makes the bodies from the dust and puts the breath of life in them, the breath of living in them. I mean, we just rattle these off. Nefesh Kaya. I can't say it enough. I've said it so many times over the last month and a half. I get a question on this almost seems like every single day. Genesis 120, 121, 124, 128, 130. Is nefesh kaya. It's the exact same word as in Genesis 2-7. That which is used on the animals is used on the humans. We are all living souls as defined by God. There is a difference in will and there is a difference in rejection. The animals will never reject him, Mark 1. He's made their bodies from dust and he breathed into them the breath of life. The breath of the spirit of life, Genesis 7:22, John 9:6. What's that? He tells you who he is. He's constantly telling you who he is. Is John 9:6? 
Genesis 2, 7. That's the same. What's he do in John 9, 6? What he does is what he always does. He's got a guy who's had his eyes removed. And he goes down to the dust. And he spits in the dust. And he makes an eye. And he puts the eye in the man's head. Again, the military, the Assyrians were particularly known for this. They would make a knife that looked like a spoon. The first thing they would do when they captured an Israeli soldier is they would remove their eyes and send them, cut off their limbs and send them back uh, as a burden on the Israeli society. So that was their plan, was to overwhelm and plus bring terror to those soldiers. Christ made an eye out of the dust. So he's telling you, who, who do you think I am? Again, creator God added humanity and descended to the fallen world, and that whosoever calls upon his name shall be saved. That's Joel, right? Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm going to guess that it's two, I think it's 232. Check me out. So, the first thing, backing up again, God was manifested in the flesh. He adds humanity that he made. And now, number two, he was justified by the Spirit. Let me make sure I have that correct. Justified in the Spirit. Justified here means righteous, perfect. He had, I see you. He had to be righteous. He had to be perfect and in order and able to resurrect the forgiven. He is the only resurrection. He is the only light. And then this seen by angels. We'll speed up a bit here. Why did the angels need to see him? It's number three of the six things of First Timothy three fourteen through sixteen. Seen by angels. Why did the angels uh, have to? You would think that's not completely unnecessary. And so, can we draw a conclusion? Can we draw a conclusion? How do you draw a conclusion? What does a conclusion look like? Has anybody got a conclusion they can draw? Can we draw a mental property, an idea, a thought, feelings, or emotions? No, we cannot. We can draw representations of them. We draw physical properties, not mental properties. And somebody will say, someone, probably me, isn't mathematics imaginary? Absolutely mathematics is imaginary. Well, we do numbers on the board. Well, we're drawing representations of an imaginary number. We actually have imaginary numbers. Imaginary numbers. All numbers ultimately are imaginary. And then we have imaginary imaginary numbers, which I find particularly interesting. Isn't, imagine, isn't mathematics imaginary? From where did mathematics arise? And that is yet the third intentionally poorly worded question. Mathematics comes from an intelligent mind. Minds must descend, oh, from minds. Consciousness can only become from consciousness. Thus, uh, uh, only a spiritual process can account for or cause consciousness. A living soul has to come from the living soul. A physical process is limited to physicality. It cannot imagine anything. So that eliminates the Sadducees again. They have a mind. And yet, again, they were, they were not oblivious. And they were, they were ignorant of Genesis 28, but not oblivious. They knew that they were believing wrongly, but they loved believing wrongly because of what it did to the people they had subjugated. If that doesn't sound like our current education system and our current media, nothing could. Our media is the Sadducees, knowing that they are demoralizing the people with a lie. Because they want the people to be controlled and demoralized. We are seeing unprecedented control in my lifetime by the government in this country. I've never seen anything like it. It's extraordinary. It won't end well. 
for them. Do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear me who can send the government into destruction. Okay, that's probably a little bit of a stretch, but I'm not pleased watching this control. These, these men and women thinking that they have power that they do not have. Fascinates me. But where, where was it? Why did the angels need to see the invisible God who made himself visible? Obviously, Timothy says that he did it so that the angels can see him. Also, he did it so humanity could see him. Why did the angels, are, why are they included in this? Had they seen him to this point? Well, there's the Ancient of Days. There seems to be lots of demonstrations that they did have some idea who he is. But he was seen by angels. So why is the Ancient of Days not satisfactory? It has to be Christ. It has to be the latter that is satisfactory. What means? What does this all mean? And again, this takes us to Matthew 4.11 and Mark 1.13 and Luke 4. Notice that in Mark 1.13, the animals also saw their creator. So the animals are part of this. I would expect that, obviously, because of Genesis 1.20, And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present the conditions of Genesis 1.2 as the primary reason. Something is going on in Genesis 1-2. The world is in darkness and the world is completely buried in water. Something caused that. That is not how he made it, Isaiah tells us that he did not make it that way. So I'm going to say to you that uh, the conditions of Genesis 1-2 is the primary reason, as is uh, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. That is the fall of Satan. In other words, both fallen and unfallen angels saw Christ. Why did they see Christ? Why did he show himself to the fallen and the unfallen? He did that because he proved to them something. And the one thing that he proved was that. And why does he take the time to prove anything to anybody? He's God. Why does he bother to prove something to any of his creation? Why doesn't he just say, I'm God, shut up? He doesn't. Why not? Here's why. He's loving. In other words, back up a second. Both unfallen and fallen angels saw the solution to sin. That's Genesis 15. That's also Matthew uh, 26, 36 through 52. Cup. <sighs> Why did they need to see, to see the, the solution to sin? Why couldn't he just tell them that he has a solution to sin? But he doesn't. He demonstrates that he has a solution to sin and that he is the solution to sin. And he hides the fact that he is who he is from them. But then he reveals who he is who, uh, to them. Why all this process? And there's so many questions. We, this begets many questions. Christ makes a, a proclamation to the confined angels. 1 Peter 3.19 Why does he do that? He doesn't have to do that. He does it in the interim, in the interval, if you will, of his crucifixion. The interval uh, that is his entonement between his crucifixion and his resurrection. He goes and makes a proclamation to the angels that are imprisoned. Are those fallen angels or unfallen? Obviously, they are fallen angels. And you see this is Leviticus 16. This is the goat for Azazel. Azazel, as you all know, is a name for Satan. Azazel and Satan are the same thing. That's Leviticus 16, 9 through 22. So we see him, the, the, the goat is, has nothing on it because the sins of Israel were put on the first goat that was sacrificed to God. That is a picture of Christ. But the second goat is also a picture of Christ. It is two, two aspects of his crucifixion, if you will. One of those aspects is 1 Peter 3.19. The other aspect 
is the blood of Christ, the crucifixion itself. The goat that takes the sin. The sins are pressed on the goat. Laying on of hands was a very strenuous pressing, forceful pressing. Not this silly stuff that we see today. And the sins of Israel were transferred and that goat was then the sacrifice uh, that was the sweet savor to God. For the atonement of their sins. But the other aspect was this proclamation. This Azazel going into the wilderness. That's Matthew 4, Luke 4, Mark 1 again. He's going into the wilderness. That's Exodus 17, 1 through 7. So that those two things are there. Obviously Christ places great importance in presenting himself to the angelic realm. Why does he do that? Because he loves them. That's why he does it. It's a judicial evidentiary action as well. He places evidence. He places himself as proof into the record. The angels are given overwhelming, irrefutable truths that they can't deny. Everything is revealed. Everything is finished. It is it is put in place. It is before men and angels. Everything is seen. None have an excuse. None can claim God is unjust for their imprisonment. Everyone will confess. And what I've always found interesting is the connection between the angels who have seen and the Gentiles who have not seen. The angels have seen, but the Gentiles have not seen. The nations have not seen. John 10:29 comes to mind. I'd write on the board, but I'm out of time. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they have believed. So why couldn't the angels believe without seeing? Some of them did. But then all of them saw. The fallen angels have seen Christ as have the unfallen. The Gentile nations are in a separate category, if you will. To them, Christ was preached, 1 Timothy 3.14 through 16 says. They ha- they, that's us. We've heard. We have the word. We've heard. But we haven't seen like Thomas, the apostles, and, and the angels. The world has believed through hearing the word. The word is Christ. 1 John 5, 6 through 8, John 1, 1. And the final piece of the mystery of godliness, the sixth piece, is this. It resets to the legal, to the trial aspect. Christ ascended. Oh, where, where at? I find it here easier. Get the exact words. Should have put it on the board. Received up in glory. Christ was received up in glory. That's his ascension. Acts 1, 2 through 3. Put that on the board. That's the discussion of the ascension of Christ. Forty days after he demonstrated infallible, unmistakable proofs to his apostles. That's what the text says. Many proofs. So again, we see this pattern of Christ being proof. After 40 days, first he gave 40 days of proving something to the apostles, making proclamations, displaying himself. 40 days. Then he ascends. After those infallible, unmistakable proofs, he ascends. Acts 1, 9 through 10. And where does he go? See, here I have him on top of a ladder. When he ascended in Acts 1, uh, 2 through 10, he goes someplace. Where does he go? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? More artwork. Okay, let's get rid of these guys. When he ascends from the earth, he goes into the pillar of cloud. Where again, that's where his throne is. Why does he go into the pillar of cloud? That is Exodus 14:19, 14:24. That's where the pillar of cloud is intervening on behalf of Israel as Pharaoh approaches. This is Ezekiel 1:4 and 1:26 through 28, and this is the final infallible proof that he gives the to the apostles. He gave all these proofs for 40 days. Finally, the last one is that he ascends to the pillar of cloud. And again, you read about the pillar of cloud. You get a good description of it in Ezekiel 1, 4. 
is the culmination of all of the evidence that he gave for 40 days. This is the last piece. This is the piece de la resistance, the one that is the terminus of all the others. Why is this ascending into the pillar of cloud so important? Why did the pillar of cloud have to be there? Jesus Christ returns to his place in the pillar of cloud. It is the behold of Acts 1.10. There's a great behold here in Acts 1.10. And the behold is, part of the behold, there's two parts to the behold, there's two guys there in white linen, but this part of the behold is, is that he has gone into that pillar of cloud. And two angels in white apparel, they testify as to who Christ really is, in case there's any doubt who he is. The cloud received him. That's an important part. Received him in glory. That's part of the of him going into the cloud. Why? What is said? Who else has the pillar of cloud ever received? This is it. He was received up in glory. The Elohim. The us. The us of Genesis one twenty six and three twenty two. This is a testimony that Christ is the angel of the Lord. Exodus fourteen nineteen. What is the angel of the Lord? That is the one who appeared to Moses in Exodus three fourteen. That's the I am that I am of the burning bush. This is the word from the midst of the burning bush. Exodus three two. That is who is in the pillar of cloud. And that is who Christ says I am. And that is who those two men in apparel. Those two angels witness that he is. They're saying to the apostles, he is the I am that I am. And this is a part of Acts 1, 9 through 10 and 1 Timothy 3, 16. They are joined together. This received up into the Shekinah glory, the pillar of cloud, to the throne that's within the pillar of cloud. And that's part of it. But the other part is, is he's... It's another administration of a judicial review. Jesus Christ was identified and received, therefore, thereby validating that his redemptive work was entirely accepted. He is able, he is, he's going to his place. That means he's finished his work and his work has been approved, completely approved and therefore finished. And when you hear that word finished, this is the final piece, if you will, again. That, that leap out, John 19.30. It is finished, he says. Matthew 3.16-17. The Spirit of God descending and alighting upon him. The sudden voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Remember, these are outside of time people. They are persons, outside of time persons. So I have all three of them there. Three that are one, triune, but distinct. So when God, when, when the voice says of the Son, the Father says of the Son, I am well pleased, he sees the entirety of the Son. Both of them are infinite, both of them are outside of time. Again, Genesis one twenty six three twenty two. this is the us. I have a note here to read Revelation 10, 6 through 7. Got to hurry, got to really hurry, go fast. Fast, 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 fast. I don't want to ask how I'm doing. Just got a few more of these pieces to go, and if I leave them out, I'll disconnect them from this lecture, and I don't want to do that. Here it is, uh, 10, 6 through 7. Ah, the angel whom I saw, 5, I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Okay, who is this angel? Is this the angel? Swore by him who lives forever and ever. That's clearly Christ. Who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea. Why is the earth and the sea separated? But they are. And the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. As he declared to his servants, the prophets. John 17, 4. Also incredible. This is where the son of perdition is. But prior to that, uh, I have glorified you on wor- the, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. 
This ascending to the pillar is the glorification, the receiving of Christ. Uh, 17, 4 through 5, actually 17 all the way to 19 is unbelievable. This prayer is incredible. 17, 4 and 5 and 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept their word, your word. Uh, it, it is unbelievable, this prayer that he says. It's the introduction to the prayer. The 4 and 5 are the introduction to this incredible prayer. I, I can't do it justice now and I won't try. So now, of course, Acts 1, 9 through 10, the two men, the angels, were there when Jesus reassumed his place in heaven. They are part of the behold. And Revelation 10, 6 through 7 sends us back to Daniel 10, 4 through 9, the glorious man, the certain man clothed in linen. And, and Revelation 1, um, 13 through 17. And that, of course, returns us back to Daniel 12, 5 through 9, which is where we were a couple of weeks ago. Yay. So if you're asking, and you should, so all of that I've done today has just been to, to get us back to where we were. It's a process of figuring out Daniel 12, 5 through 9, and Daniel 10, 4 through 9. And that's something I have promised to do. So I'm doing it. And as everyone knows, I always, without fail, answer every question that I raise never. At Daniel 12, 5 through 9, I hope you remember, it's within a couple of weeks ago, there's a river there. That's Revelation 22, 1 through 2. There's a river there as well. The river of life. The river of the waters of life. And there's two others at Daniel 12, 5 through 9. And a man clothed in linen above the waters of the river. So I have a man on both sides and I have someone above. Uh-oh. I have this above stuff going on again. I have somebody who's above. The river in Daniel 12. And in Acts 1, 9 and 10, I have two men in white standing by. And what do I have? I have someone who is above. And they're watching him go to the pillar of cloud. And he takes his time, I suspect, so they can see all of it. And note that when you get into this, you'll find this, you'll find this in Genesis 18:2. There's three men. One of which identifies himself as the YHVH, the Lord, Genesis 18, 14, 18, 16. So of the three men, one of them was Christ at Genesis 18, 2. So I have to ask it. It acts 1, 9 through 10, or 1, 1 through, through 10. I have three. One of them is Christ. So I have to ask it. Daniel 12, 5 through 9. I have three. Is one of them Christ? You get to decide that. And note that Abraham and Daniel refer to one of those three, Genesis 18.3, Daniel 12.8, as the Lord. So, is that Christ? I have the one above the waters. I have the tree of life in Revelation 22.2. So the one above the waters and the tree of life above the waters, Revelation 22.2. Tree of life is obviously Christ. says, and he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore an oath by him who lives forever. And it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. That's what it says in Daniel. That's what it says in Revelation. It's talking about Christ in Revelation. So are we talking about Christ in Daniel? When the power of the holy people has been completely shattered and all these things shall be completely finished. So this is the third purpose of the tribulation, Daniel 12, 5 through 9. There's three purposes of the tribulation. There's worldwide uh, salvation. There's the end of the wicked ones. And then this is when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered. This is the return of the stiff-necked people to the true belief in Christ, which they have yet to get. Daniel says, I didn't understand a single thing of this. In Daniel 12:8, and then Christ tells him, "Seal up the book." He says, "Seal up the book," because he knows that the Apostle John's book of Revelation is not going to be sealed up. And then the wise are going to be able to understand the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And if you can understand the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, you are a sign. 
the sign of the end of the age of the Gentiles. And that's the point. Daniel calls these in Daniel 12, 6, astonishing things. Astonishing things. What I've done is try to get you to find them. How much work do you think it is? It's a lot of work. But if you can do it, then you are testifying that the end of the Gentiles is here. And the astonishing things is all of the book of Daniel. And if it is all of the book of Daniel, then it's also all of the book of Revelation because Christ has put them together. And therefore, it's also the book of Joel. Now, I know there is a lot of dispute as to whom is whom from Daniel 10 to Daniel 12. Who's the glorious man? Is that Gabriel? Is that Michael? Is that Christ? Uh, you got your three choices. I've got Gabriel. That's an angel. I have Michael. That's an angel. I have Christ, who is the angel. The Ancient of Days. Dims the choices, pays your money, takes your chances. Who's who here? Figuring out who says what to whom and who is where and why becomes really important. So I should start to do that. Not now. Next week. Okay. We call that exhausting.